audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 132. Note we've moved from Channel 111. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Foyt, Principal of Medical Device Consultants at Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to evaluating the clinical and cost effectiveness of medical technologies. I publish frequently on this topic in the peer-reviewed literature. I'm also an editor of one of the leading peer-reviewed journals on cost effectiveness. Lastly, I'm a 1985 graduate of the Wharton Healthcare Management Program. If you're interested in joining in the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Today we'll be discussing the role of clinical trial participation in cancer research. We'll discuss barriers to participation, the need for participation in cancer trials, and recent strategies to enhance participation, including the targeted agent and profiling utilization registry study or taper and NCI and VA interagency group to accelerate trials enrollment or navigate. Here are the statistics. Fewer than 1 in 20 adult cancer patients enroll in clinical trials. Low accrual in cancer cancer trials is a major barrier to progress in cancer therapy. However, the data are consistent with the concept that a clinical trial system that enrolls patients at a higher rate produces advances at a faster rate This also means that survival increases and mortality is reduced. Additionally, 70% of Americans are inclined or very willing to participate in cancer trials. So if people want to be involved in cancer trials, and these trials improve overall patient survival, where is the disconnect? We'll discuss some of the barriers to uh, cancer trial participation, including patient inclusion, exclusion criteria, patient access to participating in the trial, physician attitudes, patient attitudes, and demographic and socioeconomic disparities. The New York Times ran an article about a year ago entitled The Cancer Conundrum, Too Many Drug Trials, Too Few Patients. This article stated that there are too many experimental drugs and too many trials and not enough patients to test them on. As mentioned, there have been recent initiatives by the American Society of Clinical Oncology related to genetic mutation profiling cancers and then identifying available FDA-approved drugs that can help treat these mutations and stop them from replicating. There's also been initiatives between the VA and the National Cancer Institute to enroll more VA patients in cancer trials. So are we making headway or are we not improving trial participation? My guest today... Joe Unger, Ph.D. Dr. Unger is an assistant member at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center at the University of Washington and affiliate associate professor of health services at the University of Washington. He received a Ph.D. in health services research and a master's degree in biostatistics from the University of Washington. Dr. Unger has written a number of articles on the challenges of enrolling patients in cancer trials. Joe, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. My next guest is Dr. Arturo Bonilla. Dr. Bonilla serves as the Cancer Treatment Centers of America Chief of Medical Oncology and Medical Director of Research in Philadelphia. He's he's board-certified in medical oncology as well as hematology. Dr. Bonilla trained at Johns Hopkins and the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. Most recently, he was an assistant professor of clinical medicine, Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me here. You're welcome. 
And then my last guest is Dr. Grant Huang. Dr. Huang is the director of the Cooperative Studies Program, a division of the Department of Veterans Affairs Office and Research and Development that specializes in the design and conduct of multi-site clinical trials and uh, large-scale epidemiological studies. Dr. Huang received his education and training at the University of California, Berkeley, the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, and Cornell University. Dr. Huang, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So let's get into it. Uh, Joe, um, I'm going to ask you to do kind of like a uh, 30,000-foot overview of what it is you're doing at each of your centers. But Joe, tell me about the work you're doing at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Research Center at the University of Washington. Uh, Okay. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks again for having me today. Uh, My work involves the design and analysis of clinical trials to treat and prevent cancer and to prevent the symptoms of cancer treatment. Uh, for cancer patients. So I work with a large national clinical trials network group that's sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. It's called SWOG. It's been around for 60 years. Um, The statistical center is here at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and I'm at that statistical center. Okay, very good. Um, um, Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, uh, one uh, particular focus of mine, then, is on um, barriers to patient participation in clinical trials, as you mentioned. So I see, you know, clinical trials, they're key for uh, figuring out whether new treatments work, and patient participation, of course, is key to conducting trials. So really, the entire uh, uh, research, clinical research effort hinges on whether patients choose to participate. Um, Moreover, of course, uh, patients, in my estimation, should have access to the newest uh, treatments in trials uh, without any unnecessary barriers. So for these reasons, I've been interested in this research for some time. Yeah, we're going to get into it in a little little bit about what those barriers are. Um, Dr. Bonilla, tell me a little bit about what you're doing at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Uh, well, um, at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, we have uh, five different hospitals across the nation that uh, they're focused in the community. So uh, what we're trying to do is to establish uh, a research program that is actually across the board, focused on precision medicine, precision oncology, giving the right uh, treatment for the right patient at the right time. So my role as the chief of medical oncology director of research there is to make sure that we're bringing the right trials for every single patient in our institution. So. Yeah. So I would assume that moving cancer trials into the community is a, is a pretty big thing as opposed to, I, I'm assuming, you know, in the past they've been at academic centers. Now we're moving those trials into the community. Is, is that right? Yeah. I mean, there's a new treatment paradigm because 85% of the patients are treated in the community. So we want to make sure that those clinical trials are really accessible for those patients coming in. So uh, the community centers and a great place for those patients to actually get some form of clinical trials. And if we have the expertise of academicians, I'm going to work at Penn for a number of years, I can bring that expertise at least to start the program, make sure that we're able to bring those patients and those clinical trials to the same place. So Very good. Uh, and Grant, tell me about the work you're doing at the VA and the National Cancer Institute uh, around patient enrollment and the Navigate. Uh, I'm, is, is it a trial or is it, is it just called Navigate? It's an initiative between ah. the National Cancer Institute and the VA. Okay. And the goal is to increase access for veterans into NCI-funded cancer clinical trials. Okay. Uh, and, and, and so th- this is just has just started, is that right? That's correct. We selected our sites just uh, about a month ago, and we're hoping to staff up the sites that were selected. There's 12 of them across the country, and uh, we're hoping to staff them up uh, starting in October and uh, the fall of uh, 2018. Very good. Okay. So the, the article that came out in the New York Times in 2017 said there were too many drugs 
in too many trials and not enough patients to test them on. Uh, is that is that right, or is there something else going on here? I'm going to open it up to the Arturo. You're shaking your head, <laughs> so I'm going to pick on you first. So go ahead. Um, yeah, well, I, I understand the intention of the article itself. I mean, they're trying to say, you know, there's a lot of these clinical trials, and we're not enrolling enough patients. I mean, there's only 5% of patients or less. Uh, I think if we look at the the community uh, and even for minority patients, uh, we are getting less than that. It's like 2%. Uh, but I think the gap is not because there's too many trials or too many drugs. I think we don't have patients coming to the right place. So, I mean, you cannot tell me that we have enough slots available for every single cancer patient in the United States. I mean, that that makes complete no sense. Um, we know that we what we're finding here is that a lot of patients, first of all, they have no idea what a clinical trial is. Uh, the community may not have the time to actually build a program in their own place, so they cannot really offer it to those patients. And academics, I mean, they're pretty busy already. So they, they're helping probably build that 5% that we're seeing, but... Uh, a lot of patients are actually eligible, but they didn't come at the right time for the clinical trial and one screening. So uh, I think what we have to do now is to look more on those barriers that you mentioned earlier. And I, I don't uh, agree with the fact that we have too many drugs or too many trials. I think it's quite the opposite. I mean, in my case, I would like to open as many trials <laughs> as we can uh, so we can get access to those patients. That's actually very encouraging to hear about uh, about doing that kind of initiative. Um, so, uh, Joe, I'm going to pick on you here a bit. And, and you wrote a really good article a couple of years ago on uh, barriers to, um, to entry into clinical trials. I want you to talk about some of the things you found that were important to kind of, uh, kind of break down that barrier. So uh, please go ahead. Um, okay, um, and if I might just touch on that New York Times article, I, I, sure. I saw it as well when it came out, and I had the same reaction. I thought the title was a little, a little odd. I mean, I, I guess the fact that there are a lot of possible drugs mean there are a lot of good leads. So I don't think that that's a problem. Obviously, the problem is getting the uh, patients on. So, and, so are you telling me that the New York Times sensationalized something? Come on, please. Um, yeah, don't put words <laughs> in my mouth, but uh, that's not an unreasonable conclusion okay. there. But, um, <laughs> at least in this in this context. But, Got it. Uh, okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, but um, you know, some some of the work that I've done with some colleagues from Duke University, we've 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 gone to um, a big national database and found that there are fourteen about fourteen patients on average. Um, with cancer for every available clinical trial slot. So that's a lot of patients for every slot. So obviously they're, they're, they're not getting into the trials for various reasons, and that's what winnows down that 14 down to, you know, however many per slot actually enroll. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, Let's and listen a, more. a yeah. lot of it is, yeah. I mean, a lot of it are structural barriers. Um, um, the fact, you know, the, the fact is that half of the patients who don't participate do, don't participate because there's simply not a, a, a trial available locally for them. Right. Which means that then they would have to travel, which can be prohibitive, especially for certain, uh, you know, for uh, certain cohorts of patients without the adequate means to do so. Um, and then if even if a trial is available, um, a lot of patients will end up being ineligible. Now, there's been a lot of work that's going on with ASCO and other groups uh, trying to modernize eligibility for clinical trials and reduce the number of exclusion criteria. But between those two factors alone, that accounts for why three out of four patients don't participate in trials. We, hmm. we spend a lot of time focusing on 
the reasons that patients don't participate in trials, but in fact, the matter is, when there's a trial available and the patient is eligible and they've discussed it with their physician, and it's right at that point, it's down to the patient making the decision. They choose to participate about half the time. Mm-hmm. So that, that number, about 5%, is a little bit misleading in terms of what patients are willing to do. Yeah. So so the, obviously the goal here is to take that 1 in 20 to make it more like 5 or 10 in 20 so you have a bigger pool of yeah. patients in the trials. Is that is that right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And then we can actually, you know, successfully conduct those trials for all those promising leads that the New York Times is referring to. Yeah. Grant, um, the, the Navigate initiative, um, tell me why that came about. Yeah, um, so I'm glad you asked. This uh, initiative actually came from a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, there's an observation within the VA that there were fewer veterans enrolling into NCI-sponsored trials. And so that, of course, uh, was a challenge because, of course, we wanted to have uh, allow our veterans to have access to these uh, breakthrough or innovative trials. On top of that, I think what really has helped this initiative was the fact that leadership recognized that this was an important need, both on the VA side as well as the NCI side. And so leadership had talked to each other and say, how can we uh, address this problem of increasing veterans into uh, enrolling into these NCI trials? And so, uh, uh, so I'm going to cut you off real quick. I'm sorry. Yes, no, no, I just want to ask a question. Why is it important? Tell me that. Oh, absolutely. Well, of course, as uh, I think uh, my colleagues on the call, as well as others, would, would note that you know, for cancer, uh, clinical trials does represent a state-of-the-art, if not a standard of care, for a lot of these um, individuals, not just veterans, but individuals with cancer. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to provide access to these uh, novel treatments or new therapies that are being tested, I think, is an important option that all veterans, as well as uh, Americans across the, the country, should have access to. So are you saying at least in the past, they haven't had access to, to them. Is that is that right? Or well, I think just similar to some of the points that were raised earlier, that the access might be simply that the site was not participating in a trial, and therefore, uh, if a site a VA medical center um, was not participating in a trial, then a veteran would have difficulties enrolling at that particular medical center, of course, or they'd have to find a location that was enrolling, which they could maybe get to easily uh, if it was in their community. Um, that said, you know. There's about 100 or so VA medical centers that do clinical trials across the country. And for any given trial, you might have maybe just a handful of them participating, uh, let alone you know the number of sites total across the whole country. So I think those are some of the challenges uh, that we face in, in this area, not just for cancer trials, but I think in any clinical trial. Okay. So there are some other uh, barriers. I, I know that, um, Joe, you touched on a couple of them, which is you know the, the inclusion-exclusion criteria. Uh, and access to cancer centers, um, but there, there's some other ones as well, um, and and some of them have to do with just basic attitudes by physicians and patients. I'm hoping you guys can just touch on that a little bit. I I, I want to know how important that is or unimportant that is. Um, Arturo, can you kind of provide some insights of that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think uh, as an oncologist, uh, I mean, who work in the community and also in academics, uh, I understand both sides of the spectrum of why. Um, there will be different attitudes depending on where you are, right? So uh, I think all of us are into science, All like every single uh, oncologist or, or physician will be interested in innovation and helping our patients to get better access to better treatments. But it's also about, um, okay, if I'm going to open a clinical trial here, what do I need to do? In the community, you are running the mill. You're seeing a ton of patients. They're coming left and right with different kind of malignancies. And 
if you want to open a clinical trial, you need to have a regulatory person. You need to have uh, who runs the lab. You need to have the visits from the sponsor coming in to make sure that they check everything. So that changes the attitude of, okay, maybe I should just refer a patient to the academic center. So that's one thing. Uh From the academic center perspective, it's like, okay, I'm seeing all these patients in second opinion and we're not. Why am I seeing these patients at a late stage? Like all of them have been pre-treated before. Why didn't the community oncologist send me that patient earlier uh, when I have actually given them the access to this clinical trial that I have promising for whatever option. So I think what we need to have is a little bit of communication between those two stakeholders and make sure that we'll work as a, as a community of physicians, not only the academics and the community, but we actually kind of like a continuum across the board. So is, is that working now? Is that communication getting better between academics and the community centers? And, and do you have any examples to kind of justify that particular opinion? Well, I think, for example, the Navigate study, the initiative that we're talking about is one of those examples, right? So uh, the, the VA technically wasn't considered as an academic center beyond training of, of physicians and nurses and whatnot, mm-hmm. but it wasn't considered a clinical trial site. Now, the NCI, who is by default the standard of care of how we run clinical trials, is working with the VA to bring kind of these things together, kind of bridge the gap. I think those initiatives are happening as well. Uh, where we're talking about the taper study, which probably we'll talk later down. Yeah. Uh, it's actually a, a joint effort between academics and community to actually help patients to get treatment based on molecular alterations. So Got I it. think that's helping. And also CROs, which are the ones selecting the sites, are understanding that as well. As long as you have the infrastructure, you should be able to. Okay. So you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 132. Uh, we're talking today about uh, patient enrollment in cancer trials and the importance of doing that in order to forward uh, cancer treatment and, and, and care itself. Uh, Joe, uh, a little bit about Fred Hutchinson uh, Cancer Center and uh, and their outreach to the community. Uh, and, and I'm assuming Fred Hutchinson is, is academic in, in its kind of thinking and whatever else. Is, is that right? They are academic, but we also partner um um, with um, affiliate sites around Puget Sound, you know, um, we we partner with uh, Children's Oncology, uh, uh, Children's uh, Cancer Center here locally, and uh, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, and it's, so there's a fairly large catchment area. And of course, you, you probably know. I mean, the Fred Hutch is is where the uh, bone marrow uh, transplant was initially developed several decades ago. So oh, okay. we to this day we continue to get. You know, people, patients traveling from all over the country to get their um, their care here uh, here if they require a, a transplant. Um, and then I I would mention as well the um, the group that I work with uh, through the NCI um, SWOG, which is a national clinical trials consortium, is is all over the country, and they have uh, pertaining to the previous point about community outreach, they have. Part of our program is is a community oncology a research program which um, is sponsored by the NCI and it and it allows us to enroll patients from community sites all around the country. So we end up enrolling patients from all 50 states, um, rural and urban. Um, about a third of our patients uh, come from community oncology sites. Um, so it's it's a, a very promising uh, avenue and uh, for outreach. And I, I would man, uh, add as well that there's increased attention, uh, getting back to a point you made at the very beginning, Jeff, there's increased attention to developing um, treatments, um, looking ahead to how they'll be applied in the community site, mm-hmm. right? So 
trying to anticipate, you know, how they how they're going to be actually delivered in a community oncology site as opposed to an academic center where they may have been developed originally. So, Joe, um, has your enrollment increased in the, the number of patients who have cancer in that area? Um, are you above the one in twenty? Or uh, I, I mean, I think that's done, an unfair question. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean that's a reasonable question. Yeah. We, we, you know, some of our um, we've done barrier studies essentially as sort of a, a an attempt to see you know what predicts uh, whether patients enroll into uh, trials in our affiliate in in our participating sites and and we get about fifteen um, percent participation. You do. Of course, that's much yeah that's much higher. It's a mix of of very involved um, um, community oncology sites as well as academic centers. Um, so they're focused. They are focused towards um, uh, conducting trials. So it's a, a little bit non-representative. But that's, you know, you need those kinds of sites as well to just to get that number up to five percent nationwide. So Joe, what's the secret sauce? <laughs> I think. I mean, just getting back to the original point I was making about how you know structural and clinical barriers uh, comprise. Yeah. Um, you know, exclusions for three out of four patients. To me, that seems where the focus needs to shift to. We've spent a lot of time, there's a lot of literature about yeah. why patients don't participate in trials, and that's very meaningful because you're, you're focusing on the patient at the, at the point of choosing whether to participate. But um, in terms of the magnitude of the, of the, of the of reason for non-participation, that's just a small fraction uh, of it, of the problem. And we really need to start focusing, in my mind, on these structural and clinical uh, barriers. Got it. Okay. Um, Grant, tell me, uh, let's get into what Navigate's all about and, and um, the, the, um, the, the initiative itself, what is happening specifically at the VA centers in conjunction with the National Cancer Institute. Just kind of give me the framework of what's, what's happening here. It is intended to deal with infrastructure at the various VA sites that are uh, participating in these NCI-sponsored trials or supported trials. As uh, was mentioned by Dr. Loaiza Bonilla a little bit earlier, there's um, infrastructure, personnel, and resources that you need to get up and running at a site before you can even consider enrolling patients and giving them access into a trial. So what Navigate is intended to do is to help provide some funding to support that infrastructure at these uh, selected medical centers uh, um, within VA. Mm -hmm. And the intent there is really to not focus on any particular trial, but rather to build up an infrastructure so that whatever trial is appropriate for that site, given the patient population, that then they could get things up and running, they could have either regulatory or other personnel, uh, clinical staff that they might need to help start to get the site up and running and then to start enrolling patients into those trials. And so what Navigate is intended to do is not only to help support that infrastructure, but also to establish a network across the VA with the support of NCI, working together with the leadership of both agencies to be able to overcome barriers that might come up as they start to set up these sites. So for example, if there are some policy issues that need to be addressed, Rather than having one site try to figure it out on their own or try to deal with their situation locally, the ability to have, whether it be a central office here in the VA or NCI policy issues to help address those issues, sometimes there's just questions that need to be resolved. That That's what this uh, program is intended to help overcome as well. So earlier, there are some barriers that were mentioned that are with regards to enrolling patients into a trial, whether it be inclusion or exclusion criteria. This is intended to deal with uh, the challenges a little bit more upstream 
upstream in the process. And so, again, this Navigate network is intended to help not only each individual VA to overcome their individual challenges, but to work together as a network. And then, hopefully, the long-term goal is for them to be able to develop a set of best practices and other operational uh, activities so that they can then inform other VA sites about how they do that so that they can also then eventually be able to function as optimally as possible to enroll into NCI trials. So you have, you said you had 12 sites, is that correct, that you've That's identified? Correct. Okay. Yeah, through a competitive process, we uh, oh. selected 12 sites out of uh, 45 applicants nationally. And so these were the 12 sites that were based on not only experience and expertise, but also patient population and meeting goals of minority enrollment, which is a key emphasis of Navigate, and also the ability to have leadership support that will allow the initial investment that NCI is putting into these sites to have a long-term sustainability so that they can continue to enroll into either NCI or other cancer trials that they have at their site long-term. So I, I know you you realize why minorities are important, uh, but help the audience exp- uh, explain to the audience why having minorities in these trials is also important. Yeah, there's uh, several reasons. I think the first, of course, is that you, when you have a clinical trial, you want to make sure that the results are generalizable to a broader population. So having minority representation, I think, will help with that. In addition to that, um, certainly within the VA, but I think with nationally as well, minorities are oftentimes underrepresented in trials simply because of access issues. And so it was important for both the VA and the NCI to ensure that these individuals have the opportunity to have the same type of care or op- opportunities at least uh, in these cancer trials, as others would, and so that's that's why these were two emphasis, uh, some emphasis points uh, as part of the program. So, uh, and I'm just going to touch on this one uh, one additional question, then we need to take a break. But so the uh, so if you don't have enough minorities in a trial, and and you get the results, and you want to apply it to the general population. Um, it, it, it may restrict the indications for that particular drug. Is, is that right? Or, 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 or treatment? Or no? 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 Yeah. Not necessarily? Well, I think I can. I mean, I certainly can defer to my other colleagues who have yeah. more experience in the cancer yeah. uh, medications, but certainly uh, there, there can be limitations, or at the very least, I think if FDA is giving their approval, they might you know, note that, and they might ask that there be other representation of other populations afterwards, assuming uh, there is approval for that drug. Okay. Dr. Vanier? get more data. Yeah. yeah, I can comment on that. Uh, so typically, the FDA and other regulatory agencies, including the EMA, they do not look at race specifically or, or ethnicity or anything like that uh, to discern between approvals. Yeah. Um, there are some differences, of course, in certain drugs uh, like antigenic agents, for example, some biology of diseases that changes across the board. But uh, that's the intention of actually getting studies open at multiple sites across the world. So actually we have representation across multiple uh, uh, populations. Uh, when things are done in the U.S. only, of course, we want to include minority patients because that means that we're not only – uh, doing it scientifically sound, but we also are giving access to patients that otherwise would not have access to those drugs. So, Got it. Um, so I think it's more about also being equanimous in, in how we actually bring those clinical trials to everyone. Right, good. So we need to take a break. Uh, we are speaking today about uh, patient enrollment in cancer trials. My guests today are Dr. Joe Unger from Fred Hutch Cancer Center at the University of Washington, Dr. Arturo Bonilla from the Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Philadelphia, and then uh, Grant Huang from uh, the Veterans Administration. Uh, We'll be back in a few. 
Welcome back. This is uh, Jeff Foyt, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 132. We're talking today about uh, patient enrollment in cancer trials and trying to get uh, a, a, an uptick in, in that particular uh, aspect of it, which is extremely important. My guests today are Dr. Benia from the Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Philadelphia, Grant Wong from uh, the Veterans Administration, and Dr. Joe Unger from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center at the University of Washington. So let's get into just a little bit more detail on, on uh, let's talk about phases of clinical trials and, and what they mean and, and what you're trying to achieve in each phase. Uh, Dr. Bernier, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Uh, sure. So, yeah, I think this is a very important point because many of our patients always, whenever we're talking to them about clinical trials, they don't have any idea what that means. So uh, once you have a drug that is very promising in the animal model, then you want to use it in humans, right? So there's like you submit an IND and then you start a clinical trial. What's an IND? And these, What's an IND? It's an application to the, in front of the FDA so you can actually use it in humans, right? So uh-huh. uh, aim for commercialization. So, so um, you do phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. There's also phase four, which is after commercialization. So when you're looking at phase one clinical trials, you're trying to find the dose. So uh, and also trying to find it safe. So you try the dose of the patient, test the number of patients, typically less than 20, 30 patients, and then you find the dose. So you put patients of like typically three plus three plus three. So depending on that cohort of level, you go level up, up, up. Once you hit the wall from side effects, you choose basically the one that is the the tolerable for patients. So that's phase one. Yeah. So once you have that, then you want to prove that actually makes anything like like effective against cancer. So you go to a phase two clinical trial, which could be a single arm or it could be a randomized versus standard of care. Yep. So patients typically can get placebo or not, but typically you just test the dose that you found in phase one, and the patients go through the treatment, and then you find signals, response rates, potential survival against historical data, et cetera. And once you you've see a successful phase two, then you move to phase three. Mm-hmm. Phase three is what typically, I mean, right now it's changing, but the FDA looks at that as a registration trial, the one that gets published in the big journals and actually showing... That that treatment is better than the standard intervention. Got it. Yeah. So okay. that and that involves multiple sites and hundreds of patients. So uh, community based typically is involving a lot of phase three clinical trials. But now we're trying to move more toward the phase two as well to help to move forward that discovery phase much faster. So, uh, so you mentioned that the FDA has come out with some um, uh, some guidance as it relates to they're calling it seamless trials. Help me understand what that is. Correct. So in the past, we you had to run the phase one clinical trial and then present that data, publish it, and then submit that data so we can do the phase two clinical trial and so on. Right. Now they're trying to do basically a continuum of uh, like the phases across the board. So you do phase one and phase two right away in the same clinical trial following guidance. So the FDA actually yesterday released some guidance on those uh, expansion cohort clinical trials where you're actually finding the dose finding the safety and at the same time putting the patient into the trial and follow them to find signals, hopefully for registration. Okay, so yeah. that, that obviously cuts a fair amount of time out of the uh, trial process, clinical trial process, and potentially can get drugs or therapies into the into mainstream much quicker. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's key. Um, and another th- point that I, I, I thought it was important is that we're also moving now to a new concept called just-in-time trials. So just-in-time trials actually is instead of having to find a site, selecting the site, and then opening and then waiting for a patient to be enrolled, you do the opposite. You actually look for the patients, 
once the patient has all the criteria for inclusion and exclusion ready to go, mm-hmm. do open the study. Really? And the study goes to the patient. So you can actually have a CRO, which is the, these clinical research organizations that run the trial, go to a community center and say, you know, I have this list of 20 clinical trials. Once you find one of these patients, we have this template of contract and regulatory that is ready to go. Once you find the patient, we activate the study right away so no one wastes time or money, and you actually have at least one patient coming to your site. Got it. Okay. Uh, Joe, you wanted to mention uh, a couple of things about some of the barriers, and you talked about income and age disparities. Uh, You mentioned that. Help me understand what that is. Well, so we had talked about disparities with regard to race and ethnicity. Um, Uh There are other, you know, very major disparities in clinical trial participation. Foremost among them is age. Um, A major study that came out about 15 years ago showed that even though about 60% of cancers occur in patients 65 or older, only about 25% of clinical trial patients are 65 and older. So think about that disparity. That is really whopping, and these are very different types of patients. So Why? Why? Um, Why? I think the biggest reason, well, there are two reasons. I mean, one, at the time, um, that was, that, that those data were actually um, uh, significant in, in terms of changing the, the policy of Medicare. Medicare did not cover the routine care costs of clinical trial participation. Got at that it. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so that was changed. Um, that has helped somewhat, um, but it hasn't resolved it. And I think the biggest issue is that trials, you know, exclude patients um, typically if they are considered to be um, a safety risk. And older patients tend to have more comorbid conditions or other illnesses, so they're much more likely to be excluded from trials. So that's that's probably the biggest reason. Um, the other disparity that's become evident um, in the last five to ten years is that there's an income disparity in trials. Um, two studies that I've worked on um, consecutively showed that patients who have household income less than $50,000 per year are 30% less likely to participate in trials. So this suggests that they have uh, issues that they're concerned about that preclude them from participating, like the indirect costs of participation, like travel time or taking time off of work, mm-hmm. or just even the marginal direct costs of participation, like trying to handle the co-pays and the co-insurance costs. And I think it's important to think, when we think about these um, disparities, think about what resolving them might do to the overall um, trial participation rate. If patients who were who make less than uh, $50,000 per year participate Participated at the same rate as patients with higher income, that 5% participation rate would move up to about 6.5%, which doesn't sound very large um, uh, in terms of overall magnitude, but it, it means thousands of more patients participating in trials and many more trials being able to be conducted. So, so, what, so what do you think the quick fixes are for, for that, some of the things that can drive that number up on the 50,000 and less? I think patients need to have the financial support so that they're not that their financial concerns about participating, whether they're direct or indirect costs of participating, are not uh-huh. keeping them out of trials. The uh, there, there uh, recently uh, legislation coming out of Congress is is mandating um, pilot programs to see whether or not. Um, uh, providing some level of reimbursement for patients in federally sponsored trials can actually uh, move the needle on this one, and I think that's a very important step. 
Yeah. I got to tell you, my experience in working with Medicare on clinical trials, they, they are probably the easiest to work with as it relates to covering the routine costs for care, uh, e- even more so than I think private insurers. Uh, most especially, uh, you know, on the cancer side, and I think m- most private payers now have some kind of policy that says they'll cover cancer trials. But, but non-cancer trials that are, you know, patients who are at risk for maybe it's heart disease or heart failure, Medicare is covering a, a, a vast majority of the costs of that of that care, including the investigational device. And I got to give them credit, I, you know, that, that they're doing that kind of stuff to get patients enrolled. Uh, and it, you know, and it provides, uh, you know, I think some really good. Um, uh, clinical data uh, that can be used, I think, in, in moving the needle forward as far as getting things out to the to the marketplace, Doctor. Yeah. So, so, Yeah. I agree with you completely. I, I just keep your eyes out um, on the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network website. Um, they've they've put together some research that showed, although I agree with you that many health insurance companies do cover the routine care costs, many do not as well. Yeah. And that 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 ends up applying to almost. 100 million people. Yeah, they, the they, they got to, I mean, I, I personally think they got to step up, um, the, the, yeah. the private insurers. Yeah. So, Dr. Benia, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I wanted just to echo that comment. So, something that we have been doing at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, as we will build in our research infrastructure and increasing their portfolio, is that we were in front of payers and telling them, you know, when you're looking at pathways or like standard of care, or care uh, you know that that 15% of pathway, it has to be clinical trials. Because at the end of the day, those patients are going to get free drug from the sponsor. They're going to get the right care. They're going to hopefully get benefit from better treatments. And it's, it's a lower cost than actually patients getting investigational random places or getting off-label or right-to-try kind of approaches, which uh, that's another question for the future for controversies. But, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that um, what we need to do is keep pushing and showing how valuable it is for payers to see that actually clinical trials is showing that everyone is following the right track and we're doing quality care for patients. Right. So I'm going to get into the weeds here a little bit. Let's talk about what the TAPER initiative is. And uh, Dr. Wong, I, I don't know if you guys are involved with that on the VA side, but um, tell me, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Benio first and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you, Dr. Wong. Um, so tell me about TAPER, uh, what they're trying to do uh, and, and, and some of the specifics related to it, to, to getting things, uh, to getting new treatments out for different indications. Correct. So TAPER is an initiative from ASCO, from the American Society of Clinical Oncologists, you know, the largest organization for oncologists in the world. Uh-huh. Uh, they decided to run a clinical trial, and, and that's great. What they're trying to do is to uh, kind of really solve the question that many of us were doing already in our practices, which is, okay, I run next gen sequencing uh, uh, testing on my patient just to find options because I'm running out of options. So, so you're doing a genetic makeup of the patient, or, or, or is it just the cancer? You're looking at the it, cancer? Of the cancer. Okay, got it. So, right. And I happen to find a random alteration that it's uh, targeted. A, a mutation. A mutation uh-huh. that is just matching a drug that is currently available but is not approved for that indication. Got it. So let's say you have a BRAF mutation, which is something that is present in melanoma, for example, and a patient with lung cancer has it. Now, in the past, it was not approved for BRAF. I mean, we don't, we don't, but if we've had the BRAF alteration, you can try it and see what happens. They fall in the same pathway. So um, the, the idea of this trial was to say, okay, how about if I run uh, next-gen sequencing on these patients, find the alteration, and instead of giving the patient treatment specific to the tumor type, I do treatment specific to the genomic, to the blueprint in the DNA. Right. 
uh, using drugs that are currently available. Like we already know the dose, we already know they're safe, we already know how to manage them. But let's use them instead of using them off label. Let's do a clinical trial and put patients in those uh, little buckets. So that clinical trial design is called a basket trial. Okay. Yeah. So a basket trial means that instead of you looking for just the tumor type based on topographic like location, like long breath, etc., you're just looking at mutation names. So you have a, a BRAF mutation, or you have something called tumor mutational burden, which is a ton of mutations happening in the tumor, and then you quantify based on numbers and then see if the patient responds to immunotherapy, for example. Got it. So uh, the the TAPER study is a pretty good study because it's open at many community centers, and it's basically just doing that specific um, uh, approach to patients. So how many centers around the country are doing TAPER? So they're expanding. So right okay. now, like, uh, as of now, they, they, there's over 20 sites. Uh, yep. they, there's going to be, uh, hopefully, a second version of TAPER with more clinical trials. Um, I also may say that the NCI is doing a similar effort, and it's called the NCI match study. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's different kinds of drugs, uh, and they're not necessarily all of them currently available. They're also using investigational and just opening at 3,000 community-based centers. Wow. So that's also a very, very good effort that's happening right now. Uh, but the purposes of TAPER, I mean, CTCA has been a very active... Uh, so how are you doing, by the way? We're, we're doing pretty good, actually, yes. Yeah, so uh, what does that mean? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, without going to specifics, because that's... Okay. Uh, uh, oh. I, I can say that that we are pretty good accrued probably the top in the country right now. You are okay. Yes. And what do you attribute that to? I think because we do a lot of sequencing on our patients, we really want to make sure that we're giving the right treatments to every single patient. So uh, we have the largest uh, genomic testing database for patients. So and we do feasibility for for the sponsors. So if you want to know, you have your own lab at CTCA. No, we work actually with vendors, like in the community, uh, okay, just similar okay. uh-huh. to what any yeah. other community center will do. Uh-huh. Uh, but we have a database of genomics. So we have a center for advanced individualist medicine. I mean, basically a, a database that tells you based on the five centers, how many patients we have with which mutation, what stage, and currently where are they? So mm-hmm. you can actually know within a week how many patients have X mutation. So you, if you're going to open a study for a very rare mutation or alteration, you actually have the number. Who pays for this? So taper is paid by ASCO, actually. So, it is. Yes. Wow. So um, it's it's very good. It's fully available. So if the patient is eligible, they get the drug, and it's for free. So you get standard of care that is covered by any insurance company. So you should be always great to go. So how how many uh, patients do they want to enroll uh, ASCO in, in this? Is there a number? So um, the initial release for us, we needed to enroll at least a hundred patients, yeah. uh, but that has gone way far. That I think right now they're plan to expand to going to the 1,000 patients plus. Okay. And I think that's wonderful because uh, we are really giving a lot of options for these patients. Yeah. I mean, that's a great initiative by ASCO. I got to hats off to them. Uh, Grant, um, are you guys involved at the VA in TAPER or are you thinking about that? And, and also, Joe? Yeah, so certainly we're aware of TAPER as well as the match trial that was mentioned earlier. Uh, I would have to get back to you on whether or not there are specific VAs that are actual sites. I do not believe they are, but they may be participating with their affiliates. So as mentioned earlier, there are several sites, and that, of course, VA has many university affiliates which might be participating uh, in TAPER. So there could be it. that pathway for how, how veterans would enroll. But um, I do not believe specific VA sites are actually recruiting sites into TAPER. Yeah. Um, would Navigate necessarily, would Taper be part of Navigate at some point? or? 
Um, well, as mentioned, that Taper is, is uh, primarily sponsored or supported by ASCO. So yeah. right now our focus is on NCI-supported uh, trials through the oncology groups and things like that. Um, so we'd have to think about how Taper would fit into the portfolio. But pretty much the, the goal of Navigate is intended to open up any trial that would be particularly fitting for the patient population at that given site. Okay. And, um, and again, with Navigate, uh, it's paid for by the VA. Is that, is that correct? No, actually it's supported by the NCI. Oh, it so, is? Okay. Yeah. So oh. the way it works is NCI is providing the funding, if you will, for the infrastructure I mentioned earlier. And what VA is doing is providing the management framework or helping to navigate through the VA system to allow those sites to be up and running to participate into these studies. You know, you got to feel pretty good about what's going on in cancer uh, these days, even though it's a terrible disease our condition and and some of the money that's being poured into doing uh, some of the really good things as far as getting patients enrolled in trials are going to have a hopefully a meaningful effect on them. You you agree? I mean, you're involved in this field and uh, Grant, you're you're involved and and Joe, you guys got to feel pretty good about that. Yes? Absolutely. I mean, for me, at least, again, cancer is not my specialty. I've learned a lot about it in particular um, uh, recent years, particularly these drug trials, but we've done screening and other trials from uh, other contexts. And I think the the effort, the emphasis, I think a lot of this was bolstered recently by the Moonshot Initiative a couple of years ago. Um, so there's several things that have helped really provide the, I would say, impetus for really not only raising awareness for cancer trials, but really making sure that the challenges and barriers can be addressed. And so I, I personally have been excited. I think Navigate is going to be one part of that national uh, approach to, to improving uh, efforts in cancer trials. Okay. So if I'm a patient. I want to get involved in uh, either taper or navigate. How, how, how do I how do how do I do that? What what happens? Um, uh, Grant, do you have uh, do you have that uh, kind of mechanism set up yet, or, or is that something you, you're thinking about? So we're setting that up right now. Uh, again, we're hoping uh, in fall that we'll have our sites uh, up and running with uh, personnel. And some of these sites, I should mention, uh, have already been doing cancer trials already. So some of that uh, infrastructure might already be in place. But basically, the idea here, at least for the Navigate sites, is that they would, um, again, be looking at the whole portfolio of NCI trials that they would have available, determine which ones are appropriate for their site based on their patient population and capability abilities of running the study, and then they would say, we want to be a site for that particular study. And in doing so, we would help them through the Navigate initiative, again, with the help of NCI leadership as well as VA leadership, to help overcome barriers for getting them set up or dealing with regulatory issues or other policy or operational needs. And then once they're up and running, uh, they would get whatever approvals in place, and they would start to enroll patients into those studies. So no play on words, but it's almost like a personal navigator will help them through the Navigate initiative. That, that was that was actually <laughs> part of the reason we chose. We thought it was an appropriate title, not only yeah, is it descriptive, but it was also intended to again to help navigate through the system and to help uh, patients as well be able to participate in these trials. Very good. So, uh, Jeff, could I um, sure, Joe? Please go can ahead. I just speak uh, thirty seconds just from the patient's perspective because you you had mentioned taper uh, in your show materials, and I did a little research of my own. I guess I was sort of taking the patient's perspective. I just went online. I found their website. It's right at the top of the uh, the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go on to their uh, website and find a center. And there are more than 100, I think, at this point participating around the U.S. 
um, in Puget Sound, a Swedish uh, hospital is is leading it. That's great. Um, yeah, so that's it. And I, just in general, you know, there are many, many search engines out there for patients who want to participate in trials. They don't have to be, um, you know, passive uh, participants um, waiting for their physician to offer them a trial. It's, it's very easy to go online and look for these trials and then bring that information uh, to your physician. So, uh, Dr. Bernia, when you're enrolling patients, you've got a, a fair amount, uh, the, the best in the United States. How are how are they um, how how are they made known about this? I mean, is it through your your facility, through the doctors? Help me help me understand that. Right. So. Um Every single one of my patients, I always tell them about clinical trials as an option. So I, I tell them, you know, we may not have every single study open here because that's impossible. Cannot run every single clinical trial in the world or even anyone, all the 55-plus physicians. So I said, whatever does the best treatment for you, that's what I want you to go. Yeah. So the first thing I tell them is this is the portfolio that we have here at CTCA. And I also tell them these are the other options. So I tell them about clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, actually, in the, as part of the Moonshine Initiative that was mentioned earlier, uh, I know Vice President Joe Biden, uh, who actually I know works here at Wharton too, uh, actually made up a change completely on the CT.gov website to make it easier for patients to find the right clinical trial depending on where they're living, based on zip code and whatnot. So just ask your physicians, okay, what are the keywords that I should be looking for in CT.gov? Uh, and, and then find the, the best clinical trial in that end. So and as was mentioned, a number of search engines, not just Google, just go to clinicaltrials.gov, mm-hmm. and it will give you at least a decent number of, of clinical trials that you can look for based on your location. Got it. And so I want to touch upon this in the last couple of minutes, and it's the issue of personalized medicine and, 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 and these types of trials and uh, the sample size you would need to kind of confirm whether something works or not. I want to get your perspective on on that and and how that is moving uh, treatments forward, especially in the in the cancer field, um, uh, Arturo, why don't you start? Uh, yeah, well, I can give an example of something that just happened in the last year or so. So um, there is um, a feature of the cancer called microcytolite instability. Uh-huh. That means that if the cancer is able to repair the DNA or not, uh, you can see it on a stain done on the pathology slide. So if you have absence of any of those four stains, then you are what we call MSI high. And you do a lot of mistakes. The cancer makes mistakes in the DNA level, and that is picked up by the immune system. So if you use the new drugs called immune therapies like immune checkpoint inhibitors, such as pembrolizumab or nivolumab or tezolizumab and many other maps coming down the line, they uh, noted that actually you're going to get better responses. So uh, the FDA took a very bold uh, movement last year approving uh, nimolumab and pembrolizumab, both for MSI high. And that was just based on phase two clinical trials across multiple tumor types mm-hmm. that had the feature. Yep. But they noted how much those patients were responding to treatment that they said, you know, let's just clone them all together and and give them auxiliary approval, and then we'll test down the line how they do over time. Got it. So that's changing is no longer the 300 or 400 patients on each arm. Now we can actually do something with 20 to 50 patients as long as they respond well. Okay, so uh, you got about 30 seconds okay. each. So, um, uh, so Grant, um, uh, your, your perspective on, on Navigate, you, you uh, very optimistic about how that's going to work out, yes? 
Absolutely. I mean, again, I think it builds on not only the strength of the VA, but the history that we have in doing multi-site clinical trials. And so we definitely are looking forward to partnering with the NCI and others in this area. Yeah, I got to tell you, I just very quickly, the VA, I'm very impressed with their their primary care program at home is just really impressive. It's uh, I had some guests last month about that, and it's just great. Uh, Joe, um, as far as what's going on in increasing, um, in, uh, decreasing the barriers, increasing patient participation, do you, are you, are you uh, optimistic things are going to start changing? I am. I think we've gone from the um, the stage of investigating what the barriers are to to the next step, which is trying to intervene to to reduce the barriers and change policy. Um, so there was a lot of research that's been put in over the years to figuring out what those barriers are. I think they're very well known at this point. The next step is is making the changes, and I, I think that's where we are. Yeah. So I want to thank my guests today, Dr. Arturo Bonilla, uh, Dr. Grant Wong. And Dr. Joe Unger, uh, you guys were uh, very engaging, very entertaining, I, uh, and I appreciate the insights uh, that you provided. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.